Hello and welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Fractured Atlas is our new nonprofit fiscal sponsor, which allows us to access a wide range of funding possibilities, including funding available only for nonprofits. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the dash why dash make dash project or go to the donate to why make page on why hyphen make.com hello and welcome to episode 50 of the why make podcast we would like to start out by giving a plug to our longtime supporter the furniture society and their 23rd annual conference making spaces how place shapes production living in community to be held June 8th through 10th in New Orleans, Louisiana. So please join the Furniture Society as they explore the power of place and the power of making in the communities we create and work in. And now back to our previously scheduled programming. On this episode of Why Make, we talk with Kim Winkle, professor of art and director of the School of Art, Craft and Design at Tennessee Technological University's Appalachian Center for Craft. Kim's work is well known for the elaborate surface markings she uses on her colorful turned and carved forms that she somehow finds time to make while being director of the Appalachian Center for Crafts and maintaining a busy teaching schedule. Please join us as we find out what inspires arts administrator, full-time teacher, and artist Kim Winkle. We would like to welcome Kim or Kimberly Winkle, whichever you prefer, to Why Make. Welcome to Why Make, Kim. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation and the opportunity. And we start with the Why Make question, which is what is your first memory and or physically making something? Yeah, that's um, a good question. I've given it some thought. And I think my first memories of making something is actually in the kitchen. You know, I think kitchen um, and cooking, sorry, is, is another art form and another craft. And I would say that's where my first introduction to making started, um, helping with Christmas cookies and just stirring a pot of this and that. And that sort of continued uh, while I was in elementary school. I, I had the good fortune and it was really uh, transformative uh, to to where I am today of our, my school babysitter, my summer babysitter was the elementary school art teacher. And so during summer, when we would go and stay at her house, she would lead these summer art camps. And my sister and I got to be participants because she was our babysitter. And some of the activities I remember that still stick with me today are those projects that we did where I was really squishing and mushing materials together, um, not so much the painting and the drawing, but those that were more tactile oriented, where I could really sort of morph this material into its own sort of creation. And so my memories, you know, go back from, go back to those experiences. And I would say some of my fondest memories are in the kitchen, making things with my mom. I remember 
growing up cutting biscuit or cutting uh, dumplings for chicken and dumplings on the kitchen table. Those are the things that really stick with me today. Yeah, that's uh, those are wonderful memories because I, I, I grew up cooking with my mom as well. And those are for my first memories of making, especially when you brought that up. It was just like making making bread was one of my favorite things to do with my mom. That was just uh, that's a that's a magical yeah. process. Yeah. I loved Christmas cookies when I was a kid, so that was definitely something that rings true. Yeah, to me. rolling out the dough, cutting angels and stars. So skipping forward then a bunch, although we will go back and thinking about dough. Um, I guess your early uh, experiences led you to be a, a ceramics major as an undergrad, and was that your experiences with your babysitter and? those early experiences with clay and dough, what brought you there? Wow. You know, I hadn't really thought about it in that way. Um, Certainly my experience with the babysitter was transformative. And I'm also very fortunate that my parents were always very encouraging of me to explore my creative side. Um, They never discouraged me from going and pursuing a bachelor of fine arts degree as compared to something that someone might consider a little more career oriented, such as economics or accounting or what have you. Um, But, you know, I just, that's, it's funny that you say that because it's so obvious now that you say it to me, but I hadn't really thought about it. You know, the amount of time I loved being in the kitchen baking, especially, you know, because you do get to roll the balls of cookie dough, et cetera. Even now I still really enjoy baking is I can totally see that relationship between this sort of smushy plastic material of dough and how it relates to clay. Unfortunately, I didn't have a lot of experience working with clay um, in school. You know, um, like a lot of public school systems, art was limited. So the time that I did have in those studio spaces and in those studio classes, I really, really loved it. Um, You know, just sort of um, the, the rest of the world just sort of disappears and you just focus in on the process of making and the act of making and transforming these materials. So I, I can definitely see now that you pointed out so obviously, um, you know, my fondness for cooking as a child and how it sort of trans, transferred over to my adult life and influenced what I studied in school. Where did you grow up, Kim? I grew up in Oklahoma, born and raised in Oklahoma. You did your bachelor's close to home? I did. I I earned my Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in ceramics from the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma, which is my family's all still based in uh, in that area, except for my dad, who's in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And then I went to graduate school, straight to graduate school in San Diego, went to San Diego State and studied with Wendy Murayama and studied alongside a long list of super talented, wonderful furniture makers. Let's talk about that transition, because I'm curious about that from a couple of different angles. So you go from an undergraduate program in ceramics to uh, a graduate program in, in furniture and furniture design. What was the program called at San Diego State? What was its official title? Applied Design in Furniture Design. Applied design and furniture, right? With, wow. the, with, with, with the amazing Wendy Murayama, who we were absolutely thrilled to have a conversation with. Um, she was up at the top of my list of people that when we started this project is like, we have to talk with Wendy. Finally built up to it. And just like you said, Kim, we've actually talked to a lot of 
her other students that uh, that have gone through the program at maybe at the same time as you or, or, or different times. It's nice to be able to to kind of continue that and to you know to see her influence throughout the furniture world. So go back a few steps with us and talk about that transition from soft materials to hard materials and from ceramics to furniture and talk a little about what that transition was and what your experience in Wendy's program at San Diego State was like. Sure. So it all happened by accident, to be completely honest. Um, I had applied to a few graduate programs in ceramics and I was um, taking into account things like location. I was moving with a, a long-term boyfriend at the time and um, he was averse to cold weather, um, originally from California, the Bay Area. And so um, that kind of put San Diego State on my radar. And also a classmate that I had had at the University of Oklahoma had gone on to graduate school at San Diego State. So talking with him and hearing and learning about his experience piqued my interest in the program. And I actually started the program at San Diego State in ceramics. So I was accepted into the program, got a graduate assistantship. So I was able to get in-state tuition and was the shop tech and got a little stipend. And my studio mate in ceramics, his name is Eric, uh, he recommended that I take a furniture class with Wendy because Wendy is Wendy. Like all of the superlatives that um, you've all mentioned, she totally deserves and more. And also because the things I, were make, I was making in ceramics were sort of furniture oriented. In my undergraduate program, we did not have a sculpture program. And I was interested in learning how to weld. And so one summer I took a welding class at the local vocational college with individuals who were seeking welding cert certification. But fortunately, the instructor was willing to work with me and allow me to explore a more artistic, I guess, path. And so I was utilizing some of those techniques to build metal furniture forms and sort of uh, attaching ceramic forms to those cabinet forms. Because of the work I was making and because of Wendy's program, Eric encouraged me to take this class. So in my spring semester of my first year of grad school, I took a furniture making class with Wendy. And I guess that, um, you know, she saw potential, she saw interest, and she says, oh, you're in the wrong area. You know, you should be a wood major. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I came for clay. I'm not going to do that. And then I thought, you know, well, that's really silly because I went to school just to learn and I had never been exposed to this before. But had I been exposed, I probably would have gone down that path. And so I felt really bad. I felt like I was breaking up with, you know, a, a significant other when I had to go and talk to my professors in Clay and say, thank you so much for providing these wonderful opportunities for me, but I'm going to go over here instead. And so I switched over to furniture in my second semester. And you point out some things that are pretty obvious is that these are very different materials. I'm going from a soft motion to a really rigid, hard material. The processes that you utilize to manipulate them are totally different. But I think it actually worked to my advantage in some ways and that I didn't have the sort of preconceived knowledge and understanding of the restrictions of material, and I sort of treated it differently. So the first things that I made, dealing more with carving and shaping and sort of realizing the plastic abilities of the material, which really worked to my advantage, having had that ceramics background. 
The other thing that really strikes me as well, and I wanted to talk about this in a little depth, you do a fair amount of turning. Well, we all know that turning is woodworking's wheel throwing. What is your relationship to turning? And did that grow out of pottery or how do you think about turning? Just to give a little, a bit, little bit more background. So when I finished up my graduate program, uh, I applied for a couple of residencies. I applied um, for one at Anderson Ranch, and I also applied to the one at the Appalachian Center for Craft. And what was appealing to me about the residency at the Appalachian Center for Craft is that it is a year-long program. If you have your MFA degree, you can have opportunity to teach academic classes. I was really interested in developing, continuing to develop that side of my practice along with I had never been to Tennessee and never been to the quote-unquote South. One of the responsibilities I had as a resident artist at the Craft Center was to help facilitate our summer workshop program. And in that program, we have week-long and weekend workshops in all of the studios, including the woodwork studio, where we have a furniture side and we have a wood turning side. I distinctly remember my very first experience. It was facilitating a green bowl class with Clay Foster, and I had to get out all of the gouges. I did not know the difference between a spindle gouge and a bowl gouge. And I was not terribly interested in learning how to turn wood. It just was not an art form that I had been that exposed to. And so my idea about it was very limited based on that exposure. Now I know that it was a very naive approach. And I know that um, the process is just a process. And you can turn that process into any number of wildly imaginative, incredible works. But what I knew was mostly brown and round. And that just wasn't my interest. So in what I did is I took a weekend class and uh, that sort of got me started. And then the following summer, I took a five-day class with a man named Nick Cook, who's based out of Marietta, Georgia. And I credit him really with being my biggest teacher of wood turning. So very interesting. So you never touched a lathe in graduate school? Actually, one time I was creating a base for a lamp. And I needed to, I wanted it to have like a, a hemispheric form. And my, of my, my peers in grad school, and I'm, I'm fortunate, I was surrounded by some super talented, uh, very generous and very great people. One of them, including Jason Schneider. Jason Schneider had learned how to turn in his undergraduate program in New Jersey. And so he helped me with that process. But prior to that, no. That's it. Yes. And, and Jason is, again, another one of the uh, great former guests on Why Make. We had a great conversation with Jason about his wonderful turned cardboard works. So talk a little more about how you use turning and how you express yourself in turning. So in my, my current job, um, you know, I, I am a, a higher ed administrator. And so my studio time is limited. And one of the great things, which we've already talked about in wood turning, is that it can be fairly quick. It doesn't have to be, but it can be fairly quick. And so the way I utilize wood turning and furniture making is to create big volumes, sort of exaggerated shapes that I then like to 
uh, apply color and line and pattern and really activate those surfaces. Um, really a lot like a ceramic vessel, the way that you would think about a ceramic right. vessel. So, Kim, I was I was interested in your surface marking because a lot of your pieces have really sort of rather elaborate embellishments um, of color and texture. And I was just curious how you discovered these techniques. How did you fall upon these techniques? And and really, what is the role? I mean, are they, are they narrative elements? Are they... Uh, Tell us a bit more. Well, um, when I was a resident at the at the craft center, I was able to explore new works without um, feeling as though I had to. Uh, I could be more explorative. I could be playful. I could. I had time to explore new materials and new processes. Um, while I was working in the library each week, I would look through the books that were there on the shelves, books that I could just sit and enjoy for, you know, the beauty that they have. Um, and one of the books that I would look at were the quilts of G's Bend, would also look at textile designs, repeat patterns, wallpaper designs, and the the, the combinations of colors and mark making and patterns really worked their way into the work that I started creating at that time and continue to still create. Um, there's something really kind of liberating and um, <clears throat> freeing and also sort of you feel a little bit naughty at the same time for making this, you know, because furniture can be so formal and it can be stuffy and it can be stiff. And so you know, by taking color and just applying it over the surface of, of these forms and then to go further and scribble on them and draw on them, it's sort of in my in my mind is sort of making it more accessible, almost more approachable and adding a new personality to a form that could be otherwise rather austere and rather stiff and maybe even imposing. It's a really human element that you're adding to it. Yeah, it's my favorite part of the process. It really is just, you know, I, I I have this chubby form and I just start, you know, I think of color combinations. I look at things like wallpaper design, fabrics, and look at color combinations and how they might work with the piece that I'm creating. And it's so fun to make those marks. You know, once I get going, the first mark is the hardest, but um, once I get going, it's just, it's so much fun. So you think the the marks represent sort of a freeing and a fun more than they really represent a narrative yes, element. Yes, that's true. More play than anything, really. Yeah, exactly. More pattern. Um, I, you know, I do think that a lot of people ask me, is there a message? Is there a code? You know, is it because it is does sort of look like a visual Morse code, but there isn't. I'm just looking at, you know, the arrangement of space, the arrangement of lines and dots. I do kind of squint my eyes. And when I squint my eyes just to sort of see kind of the pattern of the dots and where a dot might need to, to be if there's an empty spot. I also think of them sort of like stitch lines. They kind of look like stitching and mark making and, you know, visual mending um, is very popular right now. And it, it kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Visual mending? Actually, explain that. I'm not familiar with that term. So visual mending, I wish I could remember the Japanese name sashiko or something like that oh yeah 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 so like you can take like if you have a hole in your jeans then you can take another piece of fabric 
And so you're instead of trying to hide the patch, you just celebrate the patch and you do mm-hmm. uh, stitch marks over the top. And they can be very beautiful. So it becomes a part of the element instead of you're just trying to make it look perfect again. Exactly. Exactly right. You're just sort of trying to celebrate it mm-hmm. in some way. Mark making is a really interesting thing because you think back to the history of mark making, probably back to the the earliest paintings, which were just mark making, does have a significance because whether what you're trying to communicate is is just sheer joy and fun in making the mark, it is still a form of communication. Kim, have you ever seen the work of uh, George Peterson? George Peterson, um, he's a woodturner. Yeah, he does crazy wood turning stuff, but he also stitches together skateboards and other pieces of wood that are broken with like really thick wax thread. It's just oh, it's it's really really a cool celebration of the the roughness of the wood and the fact that it is splitting apart. Um what I remember of his work and I'm I've not seen a lot of it. I feel like there's a lot of black and white maybe kind of an ochre color and to me almost tribal almost african and i do love i do love non-western art mm-hmm. i love uh, artwork that's sort of more exaggerated in its use of proportions and colors and textures and something that doesn't try to describe realism so faithfully and that nature so faithfully and I do like that about his work as it kind of reminds me a little bit of that some of the work that i've seen that come from these non-western regions of the world the ultimate expression of, of that form really is wendy murayama's stitched together elephants those, those are when you're talking about stitching marking roughness those are absolutely wonderful pieces yeah those are incredible and I think, you know, in grad school, those are the sorts of things that she would encourage us to do is to try try to find unique solutions to the problem. And I think she has done a remarkable, uh, she's been remarkable at leading by example. You know, she's, she's out there doing it and um, charting new waters and she's pretty incredible. She's an incredible problem solver. Um... Actually, that's one of the things I respect about her work so much is that a lot of this work is problem solving. It's like you have the kernel of an idea, but what is what is that element? What is that problem you need to solve to really make it work? And and Wendy does a good job of that. But we did a whole thing on Wendy. So let's move on from Wendy. We're talking with you. I am very fascinated with narrative and work. It is the most fascinating aspect of work for me is storytelling. And when I saw that you were teaching a class in narrative box making at Haystack, I I was immediately, that was a line of questioning I wanted to pursue because you make some fascinating boxes and you use the house form a lot in your boxes. And I think there is something there to mine in terms of your use of these, these forms, these house forms and talking about teaching and making narrative boxes. Well, I'm really excited to be returning to Haystack. I'm teaching, I've taught this class, a version of this class a few years ago, and it was so much fun. And what I like about this type of workshop is that the students can go down so many paths, different paths, and the results are so varied. And it's, it's just really exciting. I think of, you know, a a box. I remember my very first project in Wendy's program was we had to create a vessel. 
And so, you know, a box is essentially a vessel. We think of boxes oftentimes as these rectilinear forms, but it doesn't have to be. And the joy of, you know, a bandsaw box technique, which is largely what we'll be exploring, is that you're not limited to that rectilinear form, that you can take it any direction. How can we communicate the contents through the shape of the form and how can color and texture and surface treatments also reinforce that further? So with the house forms, I started that work in 2011. I did a residency at the Center for Art and Wood, which is now called the Museum of Art and Wood. And it was the International Turning Exchange is what it was called at the time. and has since changed to, uh, I believe it's the Residency for Art and Wood. And while I was there, that's what I focused on was working with this house form. And I think of this house form, this small little uh, sort of iconic house form as this sort of omnipresent and omnipotent form that despite its small scale and humbleness, capable of being the vessel of all of this time and memories and a collection of people's lives. And so I've been playing around with, with that and um, thinking also like the boxes, I think that you're referring to um, that have the little house shape on top. I, I always think of Andrew Wyeth's painting, Christina, you know, when she's down on the hillside looking up at the house and the house just sort of is perched victoriously almost. And so that's what I've been exploring with the house forms. And also like with the table that I created, the real long table with exaggerated sort of proportions. I'm from Oklahoma. If you've ever been to Oklahoma, you know it's flat. I was playing around with those houses. They're not a fix. They can be moved into any location and any configuration as I kind of think, think of them as sort of stand-ins for the human and, you know, this sort of different relationships that can be developed and established by just moving those little houses, the scale of the houses, um, the placement of the houses, um, and the sort of, I guess, assumptions we can make accordingly. I was curious about those houses too when I saw your work in Winston-Salem at the Furnished show. I was in that and I was really curious and your stuff was all set up when I was delivering my work. So I snuck over in the darkened room, you know, this is four or five days before the show and I lifted up a couple of them. I was like, oh, they're not attached. This is cool. So I satisfied my curiosity while I was there. I was like, I love that they're not attached because then you kind of create what you want and the narrative steps on top of the table that you want with it. But how do you teach students how to express narrative in their work? I'm just really curious about that. I don't know that I have all the answers, but this is how I approached it uh, last time, which seemed to work, and uh, which is how I intend to approach it this next time. And what I've asked students to do is to bring a collection, a small collection, one or, you know, two or three items of significance to them that are is not larger than a fist. And then also I've asked them to bring along a, a reading like maybe it's a poem, a short story, or maybe, you know, it's an essay that we could just talk about and to get our creative wheels turning. You know, then we talk about, we could talk about associations that come up. Oh, when I read that, or I listened to that, this is what it made me think of and how we translate that into a form, um, either a form or a mark making. Exploring also, like, I want students to find their comfort 
point of comfort on the spectrum of being, you know, sort of maybe more symbolic and more literal. Some students are going to want to be more literal and others are going to want to be a little bit more abstract in the way they approach the topic. And I think that's also super exciting just to see the range and how how people steer themselves um, in making. Have you ever run into uh, the article that John Grew Sheridan wrote called Story Furniture? No. It's really interesting. I have a hard time finding it, but I assisted a class that he taught at Anderson Ranch in 2011, and he handed that out. And it was just a phenomenal article just about how he told story in front with his furniture and with his woodworking. And from his perspective, he's a, he's a Vietnam vet and, you know, he was able to tell stories about politics and his experience in the war. Um, so th- there's all sorts of different ways that you can use that story and narrative to express yourself through furniture and boxes and yeah, I think that the furniture form uh, lends itself really well to storytelling because, you know, it's it can be very anthropomorphic just by its very nature. You know, it has legs, it has, you know, a, a carcass and an opening. So there's a lot of potential there to, to tell a, a fascinating story. And I think there's a lot of makers who are really good at it. I think of Alicia Dietz from VCU. You know, she's a veteran and the story she tells about her experience through these wooden objects and forms is is really quite compelling. The chair form and the stool form is is because it is so uniquely human and anthropomorphic is a, is a wonderful form to express that. And you've experimented with stools quite a bit. Yeah, I have experimented with stools quite a bit. A lot of it um, comes out of teaching. I gain I get inspired a lot by teaching. And a lot of sometimes it's just a matter of preparing for a class that you need to make a few things. And so it kind of gets your wheels turning and it gets you going. Um, And I've been teaching a lot of wood turning classes over the last several years. And that's a fun project to do with students because it's an introduction to both faceplate turning and spindle turning. And so, you know, through that teaching and um, I end up building up a decent inventory of of stools. And they're fun. And, you know, they're fun and fast. So it's a good way to be explorative and playful. Speaking of your teaching experience, you're pretty amazing. You're a professor of art and director of the Tennessee Tech's Appalachian Center for Craft. You maintain an incredibly busy uh, teaching and work schedule. How do you make that all happen? and still make work. Thank you for those kind words, very kind words. I have not been as productive in the studio the last couple of years as I would like. That is something, I just finished up writing my annual uh, activity report. You know, it's that time of the year at school for evaluations, et cetera. And so one of the things I listed as a goal for next year was to prioritize my studio time. And I want to get into the studio and make some new work. I feel like I've been doing variations of the same thing for the last several years, and I'd like to to have time to commit to get in there and and see what's next. You know, I, I feel like right now my studio time is so sporadic that 
you know, when I get in there, I, I revert to what is comfortable versus what, you know, versus playing and exploring new processes and materials. I have since COVID um, taken several online classes, different workshops, like, but they've all been in metals. So I took a workshop with Ellen Weiske on making metal forms, wire forms. I took a workshop with uh, Marlene True from Picosin on cold connections. And so playing around with different scale, I'm interested in making wooden wearables, but then also how those techniques and forms can then transfer over and translate into the wooden things I make. So for example, I may not actually make a lot of wire forms, but I think of, you know, those wire forms that are just, it's like a drawing in space. So maybe I make a a wooden form and then I draw the wire form on top of the wooden form so that it kind of looks as though it's made of wire, but it actually has mass and volume and is solid. So those are the things I want to explore. Like I said, I just have to carve out the time and, you know, finding that balance is difficult, but it's just something I need to prioritize. One thing that I do find that's really interesting that kickstarts me is collaborations. And obviously, this program is a collaboration between Rob and I, and you are doing something called the Frogwood Collaboration. And we've talked to many people about the Emma Lake Collaboration and other collaborations. I find that fascinating. I've never really been involved in a three-dimensional collaboration, but I think it would be a wonderful way to kickstart some new ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've participated in Emma Lake several times and frogwood i think this will be my fourth time and then um something called echo lake which happens at bucks county community college in outside of philly and it's a blast um it's not for everybody you know like there's a social component that's not that is not everybody's cup of tea um and you have to be willing to make something that's god awful you know like that's just part of (laughs) run the risk of making something that's terrible but that's also part of the fun you know it's like oh good like the pressure is off like we can just celebrate the spirit of making versus focusing only on the product and so i love it and it, it is true and it's it's great like you have you you're exposed to things and approaches to the same material through somebody else's eye and and through someone else's experience that can be exceptionally inspiring Um, For example, one year at Emma Lake, I was working with a basket maker. Her name is Joan Kerrigan, and she lives on Vancouver Island in BC. And um, she and I decided we wanted to collaborate. And so I had made the year prior to that, or the Emma prior to that, a chubby wooden bracelet. Kind of looks like a a bagel, like a stretched irregular bagel. And she really liked that form. So she asked if I would make a bigger one and then she would weave the basket off the bottom. And then she taught me how to do that. uh, And it was a freeform basket technique. And so she she taught me how to do that, which then has led to other things that I've made on my own since coming back. And so that exchange was so rewarding. Like it's less about the product and more just about that exchange and uh, us working together to create this form that, I, I find those collaborative experiences so much fun and I look forward to them each year. So I'm excited to go to Frogwood in the end of May and then I'll be going to Emma Lake uh, next summer in 2024. 
Actually, I think it would be amazingly free to join with somebody and make something <laughs> god-awful. Because I think we're a lot of times, I think we're really afraid of making something. I mean, and ultimately, who's the judge of whether it's awful or not? <laughs> the craft gods, and they don't care. They're just happy you're making stuff. The craft gods. I mean, the the goal isn't to make anything for the Museum of Modern Art. The goal is to learn doing a collaboration. And I can't think of a better way to learn doing a collaboration than make something really terrible and feel very free in making something really well, terrible. Where is Frogwood at? Because you, you talked about the location of some of these others. Frogwood takes place outside of Portland, Oregon. Originally, when it was started, it was held at uh, the home of Del Larson, who's a woodturner just outside of Portland. And now it happens at a place called Camp Colton, which is just outside of Portland. And it's a, a five-day event. And you're there. You you just your job for the week is just to make make stuff. And generally, wh- how it works is they have a parts pile. So you bring in things. Maybe you have just a fun little doohickey that you don't even know what the doohickey's purpose is, but you think it, it could inspire somebody to make something with it. Or you may have a random uh, chair leg that you decide to bring with you. And so you put it in the parts pile. So you just go and you raid the parts pile and you find something and you just start working on it. And then you might sit, you might talk with your your partner who maybe is near you on on a table somebody maybe who you just met and I'd come up to you and say hey Rob I was thinking about making you know a box with this thing but I'm not really sure about this I'm not really sure about that and then you would chime in and we'd have this conversation and the next thing you know like you are going full force on this thing and it's so much fun and then you might ask somebody or somebody else might come over a basket maker for example they might say, oh, I really love this. You know, this kind of reminds me of that. And then then they're in, involved all of a sudden. Like they do a component of the piece. And so, you know, ultimately a finished piece may have three, four, five different people working on it. And you, you always attribute the person if they were influential in the finished shape of the piece, regardless of whether or not their hands actually help create the piece. So it's a sort of a very ad hoc process. That, that's fascinating because I've never really known how Emma Lake worked. I thought people sort of picked somebody as a collaboration partner and you went from there. But it sounds like you just all dive into the parts pile and, and help each other out. That is mostly how it works. I mean, certainly sometimes you may think, oh, I really love so-and-so's work and I've never worked with so-and-so, so so I'm going to try to collaborate with them. And then you might say, go up to them and say, Hey, I'd love to collaborate with something on you while we're here. And you may, you may approach it that way. But in my experience, most of it has been pretty organic. Somebody might just bring over a piece and be like, I'm stuck with this. I don't know what else to do. I'm handing it off. And then you see what happens. It's so much fun. It's really fun. It sounds like a wonderful process, and it actually sounds like a model that like, maybe the rest of the world could take on. Let's all collaborate on things. No. <laughs> Let's work together to create a greater whole, and if it's ugly, who cares? We work together to make something happen. Yeah, it really is fun, and what I like about it is that it seems as though people put away their egos and just really celebrate the spirit of making and sharing ideas and sharing processes and techniques. And it's it's just a lot of fun. I, I highly recommend it. Thinking of collaboration in your work at, at the Appalachian Center for Crafts, 
where do you really think craft education is going? Where do you think, what's the role of craft education in, in contemporary society? Gosh, that's just a small question, isn't it? You have about a minute to answer it and, and make it concise. Try and answer it in only four-letter words. What place do I think craft education has in today's society? Well, I think that making, uh, the act of making, whether it is working in craft, it's in the kitchen, um, it's brewing beer, making kimchi, what, what have you, I think there's something very meditative in that process that allows one to connect with themselves um, in a unique way. I think it can provide sort of a center for people um, where hopefully they are um, blocking out all of the, the loud noises that are contemporary society. Um, and really find peace, I guess, in the act of making. So, you know, without sounding too new agey, I think that, that it's one thing that craft can do. I do think that it's sorely needed, that type of activity or something that can allow someone to center and block those things out is sorely needed today. Is that something you experience in your practice? Yeah, it is. Okay. Sometimes, you know, like, uh, Eric was commenting on my schedule, and it's a little hectic, I'll admit, but sometimes I will get a commission, and I, and it always comes at the worst possible time. And I'm like, oh my god, I cannot do this. Like, how am I going to get this done? And so you work it in the schedule, and it is like the exact thing that I needed, because what it forced me to do was get into the studio and like get on the lathe with some big giant piece. Well, you can't you can't screw around and be thinking up everything else in the world while you're doing that, or else you're going to do a bad job or you're going to get hurt. And so it's like it's like medicine in many ways. Um, so I get in there and work, and then I forget everything else. So I think that craft education and craft in general can provide that for people. I think craft education also. You know, so many so many skills, I think, are being lost. And uh, because we don't have craft education, you know, it's not um, widespread. It's so limited. So many craft programs are shuttering. And so I think craft education is important for that, you know, sort of um, preservation, uh, holding on to these memories, these techniques, these processes. Um, I also think that the craft education that we provide in the program that, that I'm a part of is very important where we really focus on material understanding and process. You know, at, at the same time, I have to acknowledge that we don't focus as much on a conceptual approach to craft and process and materials. And our students, as a result, are not as versed in that when they leave. However, I do feel, though, that they feel empowered by understanding the material, that they can make what they want to make, what they envision, because they have a strong understanding of materials and process. And I think that's that's important. I think it's very important. Um, so I think, you know, that's a really big question that you asked. And those are those are those are some of the reasons why I think craft education is so important. And, and where do you think craft education is going? What is the future of craft education? And I'll combine with that another loaded question, which is uh, how has COVID changed craft education? 
going forward? So where do I think craft education is going? Um, that's a good question. Where I think it, it could benefit going is including a broader audience, telling stories um, from people and groups who may not have been included as much as others. I think looking to maybe non-Western traditions and non-Western motivations for making, I think that could um, really provide a much richer story and a much richer uh, educational experience for everyone. Um, I think that craft, <clears throat> you know, when, when we look at the books, you know, studio, craft movement, etc., we see who's included and who's not included. So I think telling a more, uh, a broader story and looking a little more broadly of who has been involved in craft and who can be and who should be involved, um, looking at accessibility and diversity and inclusivity related to craft, I think is really important for for the health of craft and craft education, but for the health of, of everything, um, essentially. And then what was the other part of your loaded question? The, the bad five-letter word that's been haunting us for the last three or four years. Oh, COVID. COVID. Right, COVID. So uh, at, at our school, we, we closed down or we stopped meeting face-to-face -face, uh, for this second half of the spring of 2020 semester. And then we came back face-to-face -face after that. Um, so, you know, for us at our school, it didn't, uh, it didn't interrupt the way we delivered content in the same way that it did in most of the other states in our nation. You know, we did have to take on uh, some new uh, teaching methodologies, mostly using, you know, a, a camera and things like that. And while I, I do, I don't think that a camera can substitute for being face to face in a classroom or in a studio. I do think it has provided new opportunities. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I myself have been the beneficiary of these new technologies and how it's being used in craft education. You know, having taken this class, the class with Ellen Weiske and also with uh, Marlene True, you know, those are things I think that are largely a result of COVID. You know, people sort of realizing, okay, we've got to shift. We've got to, you know, change the way we're delivering content and make it accessible if we're going to survive. And so, um, again, like I said, I, I don't think it is the same or as good as being face-to-face -face and in person. I do think there's still a lot of value with that online education. I think that is a, I think that's a really valid point. It's, it's not like being in a studio one-on-one, -on -one, but I think it does speak to the mission of broadening the role of craft in our society or just broadening the role of learning how to for lack of better terms, problem solve with your hands. I think of that, I think of craft as sort of the uh, manual problem solving. Just seeing the, how online courses increased and the availability of like, you know, even just getting people interested in things, even if it's only like, you know, a two hour class on, on technique of something or uh, to explore an idea. That's, to me, at least in what my viewpoint, it's stuff that I hadn't seen before. And 
for it to be affordable versus like, you know, spending a week at Penland, you could spend an afternoon online still getting some inspiration and learning and experiencing this teacher or this, this person who, who knows this technique that you're curious about and you want to spend some time on. Um, and it doesn't work for all mediums, but I thought the Pocosin Center for the Arts in Columbia, North Carolina did a wonderful job of putting some great online content out there. My wife took a class in paper sculpture from a really well-known paper sculptor and she had a lot of fun. Um, so I think, uh, I think there's some real opportunity there in terms of uh, online education and reach out, reaching out. Um, but uh, wrapping up here, our conversation with Kim Winkle, what are you working on now? What's, what's, uh, when you find five free minutes, what, uh, what are you making? So right now what I'm working on is, uh, I, for Frogwood, I received in the mail, uh, just yesterday, a little block, a little lino block. It's two, I think two inches by two inches, maybe three inches by three inches. Mm -hmm. And I will carve something into it. It will be printed. It will be combined with other participants blocks and it will be printed. Um, there'll be probably like 15 of these little blocks so that is what I'm working on. I have to get done immediately. The next thing I have is I've been invited to be in a show at the Blue Spiral Gallery in Asheville in fall. So I need to um, start cooking up a plan for my work for that show. I've also been communicating with the signature shop in Atlanta. They're interested in me having a small show there of, of small tables and boxes. So I need to start working on that. And, you know, coincidentally, I will be teaching that class at Haystack this summer on boxes. So it's a perfect opportunity to sort of kill two birds with one stone, get the most bang for my buck here. And um, since there is overlap, it's a good opportunity to try to uh, make that work for me. It's been wonderful talking with you, Kim. And uh, we really appreciate you spending time on Why Make. So as we always end it, Why Make? Why make? Why make? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. Please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the-why-make-project or go to the Donate to Why Make page on why-make.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.